Welcome back to the Career Therapy Podcast, where we explore the hidden side of modern work, help you turn procrastination into job search motivation, and teach you how to stress less, earn more, and change careers with confidence. My name is Martin McGovern, founder and lead coach at Career Therapy, and this is our first ever year in review. Career Therapy started out as a meetup group. Pre-pandemic, back when we could still gather together in person without masks and talk to one another through the trials and tribulations of the job search, we were really able to connect and get to know each other. But as the world changed, so did we. And the meetup pivoted into live streams, YouTube videos, and ultimately this Career Therapy Podcast. I absolutely adore talking to new people, hearing their perspectives on the world, and sharing those insights with you. So today, I want to take a look back in order to enter the new year with confidence and share with you some of these clips from our previous conversations. But before we jump in, I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in and being part of the career therapy journey with me. This podcast has evolved into a weekly part of my life over the years, and I could not have done that without your support, your comments, your questions, your kindness. It really is something that means a lot to me, and I thank you so much for being here along for the ride. Over the past year, we have put out 41 episodes with a total of 2,157 minutes of conversations. This podcast has been streamed in 20 new countries, including Germany, Argentina, the Czech Republic, India, and Japan. I don't know how relevant it is for them, but I sure hope they're getting something from it. And uh, we've increased our follower count by 647%, with our listener count decreasing by over 999%. I mean, these are numbers that blew my mind when Spotify shared them with me. And just one special shout out to the 26 of you who have listened to the Career Therapy Podcast more than any other podcast that you're listening to. Maybe that's because you're just trying to find a job, but I assure you there's better podcasts. But I appreciate you being here uh, and supporting the show. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much for all of your support. I can't wait to bring you even more episodes to listen to in 2022. And without further ado, here are some of our best clips from the past year to refresh your memory and end things on the right foot in 2021. Our first clip is from episode 41 with Erica Bachman called Breaking Free from Hustle Culture, where we discuss the sense of relief that she felt after quitting her job and starting her own business. Today's episode is brought to you by HireEct.us, a free app that lets hiring teams and candidates instantly chat about incredible job opportunities. If you're a hiring manager, CEO, or recruiter, download the HireEct app to see a curated list of talented individuals and accelerate your hiring process 10 times faster than traditional ways. And if you're a job seeker, join the platform to start talking to decision makers at startups who are ready to hire. Businesses grow faster when everyone is communicating seamlessly. Download HireEct.us, that's H-I-R-E-C-T dot U-S today. The number one thing that I'm hearing from people who lost their jobs and then come seek out coaching is, mm -hmm. thank God. Thank God I finally had someone else 
or something else force me to make a change because I've been wanting to do this for years. Um, and it doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean that they're like, yay, no financial troubles have ever plagued me. In my life. It's like, no, it comes with a million other things and emotions, but that's like the, the relief that keeps coming up is, is quite an interesting thing. And so did you feel that sort of sense of relief when you launched or was it just like a huge, like, what was it like? Immediately. Yes. And which I was not expecting. So like another part of my anxiety and worries about starting my own business was that I was afraid that I was going to have to be constantly working every second of the day on thinking about it and get quickly burnt out because I've seen other people who have their own businesses. And I do know that like, if one of your clients or your customers working or reaching out at 9 PM at night, like you should probably answer, (laughs) even though like they should respect your time and you could respect theirs. But anyways, um, where was I going with that? (laughs) Talking about that feeling of relief, uh, when you did launch. Right. Thank you. So, so when I, the first week that I launched in December, um, and then that next day I woke up and went into work expecting to have the same exact day that I had for the last year. I felt so good. I had way more energy. Um, I committed to my boss before I started the business that I wasn't going to be working on Winsome while I was at the store, just that should be common sense. And I didn't even have the urge to do it because I was like so fulfilled at the store and like just in my flow. So doing something for myself benefited me in my full-time job, my mental health in general. And like, I was really proud of myself for feeling even at the end of the day, after going to the store and coming home and usually I'm exhausted and I'm still am, but to have like that mental spark of like excitement that, Oh, I, I should post on Instagram for winsome and, Oh, I should answer my DMS. And like, there's more to be done, but I'm excited about it. And I started thinking, I think before all of this, that I was just like an inherently lazy person because I didn't want to do more after work, but it's not true. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Um, It is counterintuitive though, right? Like if I tell someone to work on their job search after their full-time job, uh, yeah, it's draining. That's not, (laughs) that's not like an empowering thing because it's just so routine and mind numbing and like rejection and all this other stuff. But if you're going home and you're doing something for you, hugely different energy shift. Mm -hmm. So I I love that you called that out. And so as you're getting into this, I know one of the big things that comes up, you said like, oh, I thought I'd be working all the time. I thought it would just be like nonstop a deluge in a way. Um, And there is no end to the hustle culture that exists online, um, basically yelling at us for not doing enough, right? Like, oh my gosh, I watched uh, I know in your case, playing Fortnite or something like that, but um, <laughs> putting you on blast, but uh, like all these things that kind of come up that it's like, um, you know, the world, if once you become an entrepreneur, there's like entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs and you're so scared of being a entrepreneur, right? So you just start getting into this culture, but it is, it is a I don't know, culture or cult or something, not even sure what to call it, but what has been your experience with that? 
that word the cult <laughs> all right go into yeah. it <laughs> that makes sense to me no I I mean I have never been that type of person who feels rewarded for putting in extra hours and like burning myself out um I have done all of that because I mean, when you have to make rent and you can only afford to eat rice for dinner for two weeks, like you have to hustle to get the hours to pay for your apartment. But, um, yeah, I've just, I've never felt like rewarded for that, um, within myself. So I just think, and I'm sure there are people out there who do benefit from hustling and constantly being on and working overtime every single day. But I think majority of people are not built that way. It's not healthy. Like our bodies and our minds are deteriorating because of it. And like, no wonder we're all stressed out. Like, ugh, it's just gross to me. <laughs> Our second clip comes from episode 50 with Rajiv Nathan on why he never wants to retire. And in this clip, we talk specifically about burnout and how to stay focused while reaching towards your goals. When you look at the wrestlers that you grew up on and you look at where they're at now or the generation before them, um, or you just look at entertainers in general, like I study comedians a lot, um, where do you see it go wrong? Like, is there a lack of evolution, a lack of um, experimentation? What are some of the things that you think lead to people burning out early instead of being able to continually evolve? It does come back to like that Hogan example we talked about before and that we, uh, you and I talked about for years, which is like this trapped in a singular identity um, and a single representation or a manifestation of yourself. Um, where you know you have to be wearing the bandana and the yellow cutoff to be recognized or like or you're worried like you're ruining your image that kind of thing um and what you what's interesting now with a lot of wrestlers and not just wrestlers but like athletic talent in general is this launch of like using their name as a platform not just using their name for their job um so you'll see like you'll see professional athletes who are also like streaming on Twitch because they're playing whatever video game. And it, and it may not even be like, like the NFL player may not even be playing Madden on Twitch. He may be playing like Fortnite. Right. Um, and then using their, their brand as like an investment vehicle. Uh, you have all these athletes and all these celebrities who are investing in other businesses. Um, you have some of them getting in on like NFTs now too. Right. So I think it's this, it's like, and here's the part that I don't think I don't think we totally had several years ago. You've got to like make a name in something to enable doing the other things. And The Rock is a really good example of that, right? Like very diverse in all of his offerings. Wrestler, actor, director, you know, he's got a TV show, comedian, right? All these different things, singer. Um, the part I think we were lacking before that I took a while to understand it was like you got to pick something and commit to that for a good while in order to open up the other things doesn't mean you can't also do the other things to some extent but you cannot be equally invested in four different things at the same time while you're still on the come up 
And I think that was my issue. Like when we were doing idea lemon was I was trying to do four different things at once equally. Cause I was like, no, no, that's the, that's the way. And it's like, it is, but it's not, it, it's the way after you've established yourself in some way. So today, what do I do? I have startup hype man. Right. Um, but I also teach yoga and I make music and I, I do some DEI work as well, but the lead is startup hype man. And the other things still come, come from my why and they're very, they're influenced by my why and their manifestations of my why, but I have a lead and I know that's the priority. And then knowing that's priority, what can I do with that? Well, I started just bringing music into the business so I can have this craft, but have it be part of what I'm doing here. Yeah. It's the secondary supporting the primary. Right. And so, yeah, um, I'm trying to do that a little bit with like my artistic stuff on the side too. Um, trying to develop those pieces and then bring them in as well. And so when, when you think about the primary, right. Um, what helped you figure out what your primary was when you had so many different things going on? And it, it really is kind of getting through that like noise, right? Getting through that period of, of noise. But what was it that helped sort of shake it out? Was it just like, that's where the money was? Was it that's where the passion is? What, what was your process? Um, money, yes. Because um, I look at what can, what can I you know, earn a living off of? And I guess one could make the argument that I still don't know that. Um, but okay, let, let's take, let's just take a very tangible like example. We're at middle, we're approaching fall, we're late summer of 2016. You and I have decided we are shutting down Idea Lemon. I have recently been certified to teach yoga, but I make a conscious decision to not pursue yoga as a full-time career for a couple of reasons even though I enjoy it very much and I, I very much feel it's in line with who I am. One, it's not a game that I necessarily want to play of like chasing down studios and having to be on this side of town and then that side of town and all that stuff. And I mean, I understand by saying that there are other ways to make it as a yoga instructor, but at least take what I understood it to be at that point. Um, I knew I, that was just not a game I wanted to play. Um, I knew it fulfilled me, but teaching several classes in a day over and over again would not continue to fulfill me. I would, I would not, um, it wouldn't like light me up each class. And then the passion side is interesting because I, I talk about this a lot uh, in different outlets, the, the true understanding of passion, which most people I think misunderstand. So when people talk about their passion, typically they think about like, oh, it's the thing that I love. Um, you know, I feel really good when I do it, et cetera. And those are all, those all exist, yes. But the, I don't know if you and I have talked about this before, but the Latin root of passion is passi or pati, which means to suffer or to undertake. So you take the movie, The Passion of the Christ. It's not saying the amazing cool, really hip life of Jesus Christ. It's saying- He sure suffering. loved crosses, you know? He's really <laughs> into them. Um, you might need to edit that part out. <laughs> <laughs> let him come for me. Um, it was the, the suffering of Christ, right? Like that's, that's what the theme of the movie was. And that's where I think more people need to write. When they talk about their passion, when they think about what is their passion, it's- it's not only the thing that you love, it's the thing you're willing to suffer for to see through. It is the thing that even on your worst day, you'll still show up. Even when it hates you, you will still show up for it. 
um, or even when it doesn't give you anything back, you still show up for it. And for me, that's like this idea, at least at that point in life and still today of, um, of like pitching, right? And, where, and with Ideal Lemon, it was pitching on an individual level of like a, for a person's career. I, I got the opportunity actually because of your help, the introduction or your, with the referral anyway, with Bunker Labs to work with all these entrepreneurs in an incubator and help them with their company pitch. And that was the thing I was like, this is actually the most fun I've ever had, but it's also the thing I find, uh, even if I don't feel great that day, I'm still like, I, I really want to do this or I have to show up for this. And it's the thing I found in my spare time. I was, um, I was like, investing my time into learning more of. And the other aspect of it as well that I don't think should be overlooked is it's like, what's the thing that when you see someone not doing it well, it like, like you can't stand that, right? Like it like eats at you. They're like, oh, if only they would. And then you like, you have this desire to chase after that. And that's what I found was very much my case. And it's, it's honestly like many of my early clients it, it was like the salesmanship of it was the fact that I was just like, I was so personally vested in being like, you can't be that bad at this thing. Or like, like I see the vision for this. Let me work on this for you. And, and that's kind of, you know, you, you, in a way you, um, you, you manifest it or like you create the vision for it and it happens. Next up is a clip from episode 53 with Keisha Howard, where she shares with us what it's like to be a leader when you're an introvert and how to find balance between social media and real life relationships. I like your distinction there um, between building a community and chasing fame. And there is a really big distinction. And I think you know, there's there's the Gary V's of the world, right? Who are like, every single company is a media company and every single person is an influencer. And if you're not posting 700 times a day, then you're failing. And like, that creates a level of anxiety in the world that's, uh, you know, I'm sure is so healthy. But uh, <laughs> where do you sort of see like, what do you see as the difference between fame and community? Like a famous person having a following and a person who is actually developing a community. What do you sort of view as the difference between those two things? And have you seen it change over time in the gaming world specifically? Oh, yes. Oh, in the gaming world specifically, that's a whole interesting different conversation in the world in general. I'm just like, you know, I don't know. I only know how I do community for me using myself as an example you know like i try to not gatekeep right so yeah i could spend x amount of hours making sure i adhere to social media algorithms sharing every element of my life but i feel like some elements of relationships should be sacred like you should be in that moment you should be present and a lot of times like every summer before the pandemic I used to teach uh, kids a class, there's volunteering called Intro to Futurism. It was a little camp, but it's like, I'm not in there like every day with the camera in front of me, like, all right, kids, let's be on the, you know, it's like, I have to make, I have to build relationships with these children. You know, I have to understand where their pain points are, where their challenges are, what they're curious about. And some of that takes 
focus on a person's body language, on a person's eye contact, the tone of their voice, how comfortable they are. And you can't just bring out the phone and make that performative. Uh, some elements of being in your community or you know, being more community focused can't be performative. It just They just can't. And I, I think that's the biggest difference between fame and, and really wanting to impact a community or create a community. It's like, everything can't be performative. Everything can't be caught on camera. Every little bit of your life can't be exploited for numbers and metrics. And, and maybe that works for some people, but like I'm an introvert and I get really tired sometimes. And when people talk at me and I don't know them, it's, it creates this feeling within me. Like, is there something I'm supposed to be doing? You know, like, but I, I do enough, you know, I, I do as much as I can. Um, with that being said, it's just like, I think that it's, you know, and you can still build a, a very quality following. You can still become famous and not have every element of your life be performative. You know, like I, like people have uh, their their job, but then their relationship is also like for public discourse and public consumption. Their, you know, every bit of their lives is is open for public consumption, and I just think that that is such such beautiful parts of ourselves that we're just giving away so freely and um it's just never set right with me like you know i think we should have some privacy we should have some moments where your phone is just completely away and you just absorb the moment with your human senses <laughs> you have to remember the moment with your memory you gotta see with your eyes you gotta feel and um, I'm, you know, with the pandemic, one of the things that really scared me, I'm like, is, are we now going to have to figure out how to do that completely in a digital space? Because I don't know if that is some, a life I want to live, right? So, you know, I was thinking about volunteering even more just to like be, reconnect with what I feel makes me a human being. Because it's not Instagram, <laughs> you know, it's, it, that doesn't make me feel human. It makes me feel like a product, which is fine. You know, um, I don't think that everything is just bad about social media. I just think that there are way too many elements that are taking us away from our humanity, not making us more uh, in touch with it. So true, right? It's like a really crummy version of the Matrix, right? We can't even learn Kung Fu. It distracts us so much. We can't even learn Kung Fu. Um, and I, I really like what you're putting down here because um, it's bringing up a lot of different aspects of, of boundaries and privacy and things like that. And, you know, when it comes to sharing so much of yourself online, you know, the fact that you're an introvert, but still a leader. I think is such a huge thing that people don't always realize of like, how can introverts be leaders? Because I think, you know, culturally, the cliche is that they can't, right? That if you're an introvert, it's hard to get jobs. If you're an introvert, it's hard to, you know, lead something or build something. And honestly, most, you know, CEOs and most people who are in leadership roles they're not the ones at every happy hour. They're not the ones, they're the ones that are at home working on the strategy, building the things, right? And so there is this, um, 
amazing ability that you're kind of pointing out to be able to be a leader, a leader and a person. And that's where that freedom piece, I think, comes back into it because you can be um, controlled. Let's use the word control versus freedom. You can be controlled in a job, but you can also be controlled as an entrepreneur, right? So someone quits their job and then they build their entire life around social media. And I can't tell you the number of people I've seen online recently who are like talking about the time they got like, I mean, there's this whole big thing right now with social, these YouTubers where someone got uh, hit into a crane and he had all this like surgery on his face. And like, he's, he's like, thank God someone kept the camera rolling so we could be talking about it today. And he's like, I'm really emotional. I'm having a hard time, but I'm just so glad that we had, I'm like, some of this should be private, but they, but he, he, there was a point where like his dog was barking. He's like, Hey, this is how we make money quiet. And like, I'm like, damn, man, like nothing, nothing is sacred. Not a single thing in the, in these people's lives is sacred. And it reminds me when you're talking about like pulling out the phone and being performative, it reminds me of uh, an influencer that someone showed me the other day on Instagram, their kid comes running off the soccer field crying because they missed a goal or whatever the thing might be as a really young kid. And the dad's hugging the kid and the mom just has the phone and she has this like paragraph written about how you should feel your emotions and how you should, I'm like, if my mom put a phone in my face <laughs> when I was crying at a soccer game, when I'm like six years old, I, I'm like, I don't want to be around that mom the rest of my life, right? And so I think what you're calling out here is really interesting. And again, everyone live your life the way you want to live it, right? But I think that the narrative that's out there doesn't talk enough about how to be an introverted leader or how to be a community leader who's not being an influencer or influencing, but influencing with influence, not you know the, the traditional way. So what are some of the struggles that maybe you've come across along this journey? Are there times where you felt like you had to be a certain way um, and yeah. were pulled? Yeah, I mean, you you bring up like a good point. It's, it's so pervasive, right? So, you know, there are times where I'm like, oh, if I'm not on social media, I'm just gonna lose all my opportunities. I'm not gonna be competitive. No one's gonna know the work that I've done. And so I, I try to do it and then I feel the inauthenticity sort of creeping up within me and it feels very, I, I start suffering from like a, a sort of cognitive dissonance and I'm just like, this isn't, you know, this isn't what, who I am, right? Um, but I feel like social media and like the influencer industry and just what it means to, to be relevant in this day and age, it's like tar, it's so sticky and gooey. You just touch it and you be like, all right, I gotta do more of it. And you just get it all over you. And you just think that that's the way you should do things. And, you know, um, I remember like last year I was having a really hard time with this cognitive dissonance sort of thing because it was the pandemic. It, you know, so much civil unrest, so much, you know, just change and uncertainty and just, it was a terrible time to like be on the internet really. And uh, I remember talking to a friend of mine and I was like, yeah, I got to build a social media strategy. And then I just started crying. 
I'm just like, I don't want to do that. Like, I don't want to think about that at a time where my heart hurts. You know what I'm saying? Like, what am I going to put on social media? I don't, I don't want to do that. That's not real to me. Like, I just want my heart to hurt and I want to process those feelings and figure out how I feel. Now our fourth clip comes from episode 63 with David Fano, where we talk about improving your job search through knowing yourself and doing that internal work necessary for a lasting career. Without giving advice, because I think that's actually been one of the fun parts of this podcast is like, we're both dancing around saying anything concrete because we're like, well, <laughs> it just depends on who you are, right? And it's like, and, and we're trying to like talk through these things. And one of the easiest ways to do it is to almost just critique what other people are saying to some degree. Um, but let's move into like, rather than tell someone what to do, like, oh, I should, should I um, tell my employer all of my insecurities or should I not say anything at all? Like, but instead of getting into that kind of a thing, um, let's just talk about how can people figure themselves out better? Cause that's what I really enjoyed about the things that you're building where it's it's very much giving the tools to the seeker to figure themselves out and like the, the personality tests and things like that. And so when it comes to getting to know yourself, so this is a three-part question and I'll lay out the questions then we can take them one at a time. How does someone, or what are some of the ways that someone could get started learning about themselves then what are some of the ways that a person can start to understand their customer, AKA the ideal company? And then how do you bring those two things together into a meaningful career? So let's start with the themselves. How could someone begin that journey of understanding who they are and how they work so that they can actually make better decisions in their career moving forward? So I'm going to start with the non-obvious obvious answer is be willing to go on the journey a lot of people say like oh, i want to learn more about myself but they, they really don't like oh i can take feedback but they really can't <laughs> you know i want all the feedback but they really don't right and so i think it's and i don't know like when that switch flips i can just kind of like observe it from the outside but it's like first is like truly truly want to go on this process of self-discovery and self-awareness um, and be open. I think people say they are, but they're closed. And then it just, it's combative and, and they don't really get anything out of it. So I'd say that's step one, again, sort of obvious, but worth, worth stating. Um, then like, there's lots of frameworks out there. So and I, I, I think it's valuable making a distinction between like advice and techniques, you know, get a little cute with language here, mm -hmm. because I think I can recommend techniques that are kind of like proven and, to work. Um, so I think there's lots of frameworks. We made one, you know, um, and I think that people get too hung up on the framework. I think a lot of them, if you go down to the component parts, they're quite good. And again, because they kind of want to just like expedite to the end result, you know, and get, they get hung up on like being typecast or being put in a box. And again, that's not, that's more about like you being upset about being put in a box and less about engaging in the process of like, exploring that language to see which one of those attributes like truly describes you. And so I think once you can kind of agree to a language set that makes you feel good about like a, a mapping of yourself, 
then go engage with others, right? And, and again, and understand those different contexts. How do I show up at work? Go ask a past colleague, like, all right, no, for real, tell me, what was it like to work with me? You know, when did I excel? When did you see me charged up? When did you see me kind of get bent out of shape? Go do it with your family, right? You're going to act different with them. Go do it with your friends and really engage in that sort of more journey of inquiry about yourself. If you want to use a test, go for it. You know, take it multiple times because I also think we change. Um, you know, think about the different contexts in which you take it. I just think too many people get caught up in like, like stumping the chump instead of being like, hey, you know what, let me like trust fall into this thing and actually try to learn. It's just easier to put up the barriers and be like, well, this, this test is stupid because look, yeah, what about that? Or what about this situation? It's like, yeah. And that's, if it was like a science, they would just take my blood and tell me mm -hmm. like from my DNA, this is my personality, but there's a reason <laughs> that's not that. And we change, but you got to be willing to explore and learn. And so what I tell people is like, tr try to come up with like a taxonomy for understanding yourself, because once you have words, you can then start to like navigate those words and, and, and what they mean. But without it, then it's just like super nebulous and, and you just have a blank slate. So th that's why I think those things are really helpful. Um, any of them were Myers-Briggs, Strength Finder, Our Work Styles, DISC. You know, they're all trying to get to the same places, giving you a taxonomy to try to understand yourself. And I think that's helpful. I love that. Yeah, I, I personally got hit the hardest by the Enneagram. That was the one that like, <clears throat> I was like, damn, like, okay, that's some things to think about right there. And um, it's one of the things that I've actually gotten more and more comfortable with over time in talking to other people because everyone has their own preferences too, right? And I think that that's an important piece. When I have people take personality tests in my coaching, I don't actually care what the result is. I care what their response to the result is. And that's really what yeah, I'm analyzing. Sense. I'm like, if you disagree with the test, that's just as important to me as, you know, thinking the test was the most accurate thing on the in, on earth. And uh, this is where I'm challenging myself to be more open-minded to, to the variety of humans in the world, where I'm like, some people are obsessed with like, you know, the, the I, I paste a little attention, I don't even know what it's called, uh, when they look at the stars, what, what is that? Astrology, right? Oh, astrology. Yeah. yeah. Like some people are really obsessed with it. And like, <laughs> at a certain point I go, I used to just like roll my eyes, but now I go, oh, wait, 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 wait. This is just their way of expressing how they feel. Okay, what can we pull out of that? Like that's where I'm yep. like starting to become better at that kind of stuff. And this brings us to episode 71 with Freddie Ayala, where we discuss the marketing perspective as it applies to the job search. Really fun topic that we get into. So yeah. if you think about it from a marketing perspective, we have to write these messages with the reader in mind. The, the kind of basic template I use is like, while researching the music industry, your profile came up or your business came up. So it's kind of setting the stage of how you came across them. So while I was doing research on the music industry, your profile came up and it looks like you're doing some fascinating things at this mm -hmm. company in this industry. I'd be curious to learn more about your work. Would you be open for a quick conversation? So super mm -hmm. short, make it about them and have a clear next step of what to do next jump on a phone call because then in the phone call you could talk about how you just graduated and how you did social media at 
for your school mm-hmm. and how you tripled the results and everything like that. Yeah. But if we try and say it all at once, we overwhelm the person and mm-hmm. they just literally don't know how to reply. Like that person's mm-hmm. probably not sitting there going like, oh, let me go to the job boards and see if I can find something <laughs> yeah. for this guy, right? They're probably yeah. going, oh my God, I'm late for a meeting. I've been up all night. I'm really mm-hmm. tired. Like they're, they're stressed out about their own stuff. So we got to kind of realize what state of mind they're in. And also mm-hmm. if the, you know, the CEO or whoever it is doesn't reach out, go down a rung, go to the, you know, director, the VP, the manager, the, the junior manager, you know, find the person yeah. that will respond. I'll pause there. What yeah. are your thoughts on that? I like, I really like, I think that's very, very helpful, extremely helpful. And you're right about them reading a message like that and just be like, okay, like, I don't care. You know, like, I don't care. I'm, I'm Not even I don't care, but like, I don't have time. That's more yeah, so it. Exactly. It's like, it's like, oh, yeah. I mean, I might want to help this person, but I don't have time. Yeah. But if mm-hmm. you flatter them a little bit, they'll be like, oh, well, I want to feel flattered a little more. So <laughs> I have time, you know? Yeah. I like that though. It's, you know, uh, you're right about building the, trying to build the relationship first rather than, and just here's what I want. Um, but yeah. For sure. And then you can almost weave your project into it. Like, so that's entry level networking, messaging, setting up one-on-one meetings and things like that. Mm-hmm. But then there's the, you know, you keep going down that road and this is sort of the, the journey I went through too. It's like, start with professional organizations, then do one-on-ones, then get comfortable with one-on-ones, then lead groups. So I would start hosting my own events. Then eventually you get to a point where you're like, well, how can I connect with more people on a more regular basis? And, you know, the podcast has many reasons. There's many reasons why I do a podcast, but part of it is it's my kind of project that allows me to stay in touch with the community, coaches, Mm. therapists, job seekers in a much more informal, but also formal way, right? Mm. Like if I just said, Hey, you want to get on a call for an hour to a VP of some place? It's a little harder to get them on the phone than if they want to be on a podcast episode or something like that. Mm. Um, mm. But again, like these are, this is just one of many reasons to keep building your projects and keep putting yourself out there, right? Someone who yeah. is on the board of, you know, some music organization is going to have more opportunities to talk to people that work at these companies or someone who is mm-hmm. volunteering to host different cool events or in your case, building these playlists, or maybe you build playlists, like, and you you reach out to the local musicians you're putting on the playlist, and you talk to them a little bit and ask them who their managers are and who, what companies they're working with and things like that. So you can almost leverage the project that you're building into your networking and into your sort of strategy beyond just, I hope someone sees it to how can I utilize it as a vehicle to get more connections. Even if I, if nothing happens with it, it's still my own little, little project. I, yeah. I can still do whatever I want with it. You put it on your resume. Um, you can put it in, exactly. you can talk about it in interviews for sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, I know, I love that you brought up like family ties because mm-hmm. I think that that's actually something people don't think about as much about how people get jobs, right? If you look mm-hmm. at job boards, you know, you mentioned you're not hearing back from job boards. Typically for entry-level jobs, job boards have like a one to 4% response rate. So what that Mm -hmm. means is like every hundred you send in, you should expect to hear back from one to, uh, you know, just a couple or a handful of them. Right. And so the issue with that is that 
it's hard to send in a hundred applications via the internet into the black mm -hmm. hole of the job boards. And so people get really burnt out really fast. Sort of what you mentioned you, the first three months out of school, it was like just going at it hard. And then you're like, I'm not hearing back from this stuff. And you start to burn out and it starts to, so that's why we got to find these sustainable things like the project that you've built and launched to like stay engaged over longer periods of time. And remember why you love music as well, right? You don't want to lose sight of that. And then um, this networking approach of like sending that message that we just talked about, re retooling it and sending it out, that gets about like a 40% response rate. Mm. And then, um, you know, the more engaging the thing is that you're doing, the higher the turnover or the higher the response is. And right. so one of my favorite examples of this, I was coaching someone once and they mentioned like, oh, I want to start getting involved with like um, uh, e-games, right? Um, am I saying that right? Esports. They want to e get involved in esports. And they're yeah. like, well, there's no esports in my area. There's no like meetups or anything. So I was like, let's create a meetup, see what happens. So he mm -hmm. created an esports meetup, like put it on meetup.com, like 40 people joined it because meetup.com shared it out with the community. And then because he had 40 people in the group, he goes, well, I guess I could reach out to some speakers and see if they'll speak. So he reached out to a VP at um, EA Sports and asked oh, if they yeah. wanted to speak at the event. And the VP couldn't do it, but he sent the director. And so the director okay. did it. Um, and then, so he puts on this event with these 40 people that like, you know, coding and esports. And right. this person who works on the tech team at uh, EA Sports, and mm -hmm. then he's kind of that connecting tissue that brought it all together. And it ends mm -hmm. up being like, you know, they were talking internships by the end of the day, right? And so mm -hmm. that kind of stuff, like putting yourself in these situations to make these contacts, because a lot of times people do get jobs from family and friends and friends of friends mm -hmm. and things like that. I think 80% of jobs are found through like knowing someone who works at the company. And so if we don't have those family connections, how do we get to know people at the company? Well, we got to put ourselves in those situations to get to know those people. So I love that you're already starting to kind of put these pieces together and put yourself out there in that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, like, like you said, it's, it's more of like, what can I do for them rather than what can they do for me? Like exactly. They want to know what, what I'm doing and what I can bring, what, what skills and, yeah. So what skills I can bring, you know? And that brings us to like, what is it that these companies are struggling with? Like, what are the core problems that they have? What do you think some, what do you think the typical problems that these companies have are on their marketing team, on their community engagement team? What do you think they're struggling with? I want to say, I, for sure, I feel like it's like not interacting enough with their with their fan base mm -hmm. uh, yeah just not connecting with them just not just not relating relating to them so engagement uh, yeah engagement for sure and engagement um, leads to what so let's say you're running a business and mm -hmm. you're able to hire someone to improve the engagement between your business and your consumers what would that do for your business it would bring more loyal loyal customers exactly it bring it, it built it builds a community you know um with the with the when i was doing the social media 
for the student union at my school, it went from being completely dead to to it being a becoming like a community. It became it became a place for students where we're very comfortable with with sharing anything with us, even if it was like personal stuff. Even I remember one day uh, uh, a student had tweeted at us and said, "Oh, I just got." I just aced my my last final or something like that, and and then other people sharing, you know, their their achievements. Um, and I, I I really love that that they they looked at us as like a as like a just a, a safe environment, like a community where we're students, like we're all students there. Like why can't we all just get along and interact with each other? You know? Yeah. Um, and I feel like that that's what a lot of uh, companies, especially major, like bigger record labels and stuff like that in the music industry, they, they really lack engagement. Um, mm-hmm. They just post something and they, that's it. They post and go. And that's yeah. It. Post and ghost, as they say. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and that's, and that's kind of the thing, right? Like, so that story that you just told is, is one that you definitely should note down and tell in an interview, right? Of like how you created this community that really help people open up and engage and talk about things. And then you relate that back to the business's needs. It's not just that you did it, but it's that you know how to create spaces that foster that kind of conversation and community. And what that does for businesses, it helps them better understand their consumers and basically do market research. It helps them retain customers over longer periods of times and it helps them attract new customers because the word of mouth from all the community people talking will spread and so all of this becomes part of your value proposition in your job search and in the way that you talk about and market yourself we interrupt today's episode to let you know about career therapy's unstuck coaching program If you're feeling paralyzed by job search procrastination and unsure of what to do next in your career, we're here to help. Each month as a member, you will get access to two one-on-one coaching calls, unlimited virtual chat with your coach via Slack, invitations to bi-weekly group coaching sessions, and lifetime access to our eight-part job search curriculum. Want to take your search to the next level? head over to careertherapy.com and schedule a free 15-minute consultation to chat with me today and see if coaching is right for you. Now back to our show. Our sixth clip here is from episode 73 with Charlotte Jap, where we take a critical look at career milestones and start rethinking what it means to be in control of your career. One of the I think the best parts about being a career coach, especially at my age, you know, I'm 33 right now and I've been coaching for, uh, you know, five to eight years, depending on how you look at it. Um, When I was still in marketing, I started doing some kind of brand coaching on the side and things like that. But one of the most fascinating things that um, that I've learned while talking to really young people and, um, you know, talking to older generations is that when someone's like really fresh in their career, they tend to think everything is life or death. They're like, if I don't get this interview, my life is over. If I don't work at, you know, Google, I'm never going to have a career. And then I remember some of the stories that I heard when I was younger, where it was like, oh yeah, my uncle, like basically just got in in a car and drove around the country for like a year and a half before starting his career. And I was like, 
how did they do that? Like, I couldn't even imagine doing that when I was, you know, mm -hmm. 19, 20. And there's these kind of interesting things that happen as you go through your career where you, you learn how, how this is all very fluid. Everything is very fluid. Careers are not static, even if you're in the same job for, you look at someone who's been in a job for 30 years and you think, wow, like young people get judgmental. They'll be like, wow, that person never went and adventured and did anything new. And it's like, you don't know what roles they had in that, in that company. They might've had a vast, vast number of like interesting career opportunities just within mm -hmm. one company. And so there's so much we can learn from these different things. And I think one of the things to keep in mind that um, as we're talking to people who are maybe in their first or second career transition is like our priorities change throughout our lives and our goals change throughout our lives. And one of the ways that I talk about that with people is, you know, I try and simplify it to this, to like the three P's people, position, and pay. And just those three things can be in wildly different places, depending on where you're at in your life with kids, with money, with all these different things. But I'm curious, what have you seen in regards to like how priorities change throughout our lives and maybe what should we start thinking about earlier on? Because like, I don't know, I guess what I'm thinking here is like someone who's younger thinks they have it, who thinks they have it all figured out is like, this is what I know I want to do until I'm 80. It's like, but then you talk to people who are in their fifties and sixties and you're like, ah, I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know how certain you can be at this age of like what you're going to like in 50 years, you know? Uh, but what have you sort of seen in like the changing priorities um, as we move through these generational, because we're going to go through generational shifts as we age, right? So like, mm -hmm. it's not just young people talking to older people. It's the generational shifts that you go through as a person throughout your life. I'm kind of curious what you've sort of seen. Yeah. I had a really cool meeting with one of our circle members recently. She's in her mid fifties. Um, and well, part of our process is that we onboard everyone individually. So I actually do get to meet a lot of older professionals and hear like, what is the challenge you're having right now? What are you looking to learn or who are you looking to connect with? So this one woman, Teresa joined um, and she is a badass. She worked at Kodak during kind of its glory years, even into its demise a little bit and saw some of the mistakes that they made. Um, but what was really interesting about my conversation with Teresa is that she told me, and this is a hotly debated topic, she said, you can have it all, just not at the same time. So especially when you look at that conversation among women who are thinking about having kids and growing a family and how that takes a toll on career, she was like, my whole life has been about career. I'm really focused on learning, growing, um, doing the things that I love, contributing to the world, um, et cetera. And I wasn't going to settle for marrying someone who wasn't going to actually add to my life. I didn't want anyone who might be a detractor or not believe in me. Um, I wanted to just continue like that growth. So she basically, um, and she's in her 50s, so maybe this was really controversial at the time. Now it's maybe more normal. She got married, I think, at 33. And she said from 33 to 37, she just popped out babies. <laughs> she had like three kids. And, um, and she said, like, you know, that was a period for me about family. Like I met someone, I was really excited about our partnership. And, uh, you know, we were in love and had kids. And my career wasn't a priority then. 
So she took time off, um, which is again, a big thing that women are always kind of like debating about how much time should you take off? But she actually took off like 18 years, like really took a break and decided at the end of that period that she wanted to work as a volunteer for a global charity and actually went around the world to all different countries speaking on uh, the importance of education um, and raising money for the organization. And then now is killing it at a tech company um, for she has a really senior role and is totally fulfilled and loves working with the younger employees at the company. And now it's back to work. So I think to what you were saying about like shifting priorities, I think it's okay when we decide that we need to focus on a part of our life that isn't work. And then there are going to be moments that you're like, it's all about my next you know, career position right now. And I'm going to like really focus on getting that promotion or getting a new job. Um, and I think that's something that needs to be talked about more, you know, that kind of okayness with, um, with looking at the next moment um, from the more holistic perspective of life. It's not just about work. Um, the other thing that was really interesting, and I recommend this for anyone who's interested in the, the cross-generational conversation, there's a book called Okay Boomer Let's Talk that came out last year by Jill Filipovich. And she was on a podcast with Ezra Klein. And that podcast was really fascinating because it put um, her, who's a very liberal person in kind of debate slash conversation with a more conservative person about kind of the lifeline and when we're supposed to hit these certain milestones. And I'll, I'll, you know, long podcast, short, I'll just say I, the most interesting part was we talked about how previous generations looked at marriage as a uh, keystone and our contemporary generation and world looks at marriage as a capstone. It's something that you have to get all of your ducks in a row, your career, um, your life, your income, your savings, all of that needs to be like in a certain spot before you can allow yourself to get married. Whereas in the past, it's really been just another piece of that journey, you know, it kind of like, it, it's sort of like part of just that growth. So I just want to like offer that perspective. <laughs> I absolutely love what you're bringing up here. Cause it really hits on a number of things that if you're only reading, you know, pop articles on LinkedIn, or if you're only reading, um, or only listening to people who are exactly your age, you miss out on a lot of this nuance and a lot of this you know, making it your own, right? Like that story of where she took 18 years and now she's back in the workforce and she's crushing it. Like the narrative that is generally out there is not that. The narrative is if you take any time mm -hmm. off, your career's over. And it's kind of a fear-based narrative again. I think a lot of this stuff comes back to like, what if I don't hit these milestones? Will my life be over? What if I don't do these things? What's going to happen? And it's, it's, I, I think your points on marriage here, I need to go listen to that podcast. And I think like, um, I've done a pretty good job of building like a lot of connections in my work life with older folks to be able to talk about career and things like that. And be like, well, what, what are you doing? You're, you know, you're 47. I'm, you know, 28. Like, what are you, what should I be looking out for? I've had those conversations, but we, my, my partner and I were like, wait a second, we don't have like 
a ton of people to talk to about like what's marriage like five years in what's marriage like 20 years in what's marriage like you know like mm-hmm. we just have our parents and like there's awkwardness there right and so it's like <laughs> yeah. there's there's so much like interesting stuff to learn not just in the working world around these things but in life as a whole and I love that you talked about that holistic approach there because we really do have to look at the entirety of our lives when making these decisions um because you know you see people if we're going to fast forward to like the cliche kind of conversation that always happens when ageism and and work life balance and all these things come up it's like at the end of your life you kind of want to die without regrets right so they've done those studies where they ask people like what do they wish they did more of and no one said i wish i worked more they always say like I wish I asked that person out, or I wish I spent more time with my family, or I wish I did X, Y, and Z. And that's always a great article to go read and and remind yourself of those things. But um, sometimes, I don't know, we get a little bit like myopic in our thinking, and we kind of lose sight of not only the different things that we're going to want at different times in our lives, but also the ability that we have to control those things and, and to be in the driver's seat of those decisions rather than in like the trunk, you know? And finally, our last clip is from episode 75 with Rosette Elgesen on how to stop the cycle of self-criticism in order to rise above the insanity and succeed in your life and career. And I'm curious, like, how do you help people stop that cycle of like I don't know almost being like ADD in in the way that they look at their life yeah it's hard to keep up we have come to a point where many people have already probably stopped listening to this podcast (laughs) many you know many people don't have the patience to watch a video on Instagram that's longer than 26 seconds And so there's this constant state, we're living in the state of what's the next thing, what's the next thing, what's the next thing. We've lost a little bit of patience, I think. And we get so distracted by these things that it's constant novelty and constant stimulation. And that can create a sense of overwhelm within the self where you're constantly trying to anchor yourself in these external things. And if they're changing so rapidly, how are we going to keep up? How am I going to know what's going to fulfill me? How am I going to know what's going to study me? How am I going to know what is truly the thing or the things that are meant for me? If I'm constantly being distracted and fed this information, I think it's going to be so interesting when we look at the next generation and the generation after that and things like brain scans and how different those are going to look. Because I'm assuming you and I kind of grew up around the same time. We did not grow up with technology in front of us Mm -hmm. all the time and this isn't to you know burn social media or anything like that it's so powerful and so wonderful in a lot of ways but I think that's one of the biggest things that we see where people are just being fed so much information so many opinions so many different perspectives and we're not meant to process we cannot process that much information So it becomes this just distraction where we're living in this space of constant overwhelm and we forget to look within. Yeah. And so that's what I'm seeing a lot is I'm having to help people even just doing things like value sort activities and session. Like what are your values 
and people struggle to even start those sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and like the cliche in the coaching world, right. Is if you start talking to someone, you're like, well, what, what do you picture your life to be like? And they go, I want to be Oprah. And it's like, okay, yeah, but that's, that's <laughs> trying to live someone else's life or I want to be Elon Musk. Right. And so, you know, when, when we do, and I've actually, I've been listening to some different um, therapists talk about this recently too, in which there are sort of in the video that I was watching, he was talking about like, there's these two sort of mindsets around therapy, even there's maybe the older school mindset of like, this is a slow process that unveils things over time. Um, And then there's kind of this newer mindset, maybe it's new, maybe it's not, I'll I'll let you get into it, but of like really hyper task oriented and like goal oriented kind of therapy. And I know in the coaching world, it's all very goal focused, right? Like it's like get a job and that they're stressed out every day about getting that job. But have you seen any changes in the way that um, therapy has kind of been going in people taking their time or wanting to rush or having patience and things like that? Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. This is such a good topic and such a good question. Um, Think about, I don't, I don't know if I should name, name anything, but these apps or these websites where they're marketing have 24 seven access to your therapist. You pay this flat monthly fee and you can text anytime, you can call anytime, you can schedule a session anytime. And yes, it's important that people have access to mental health resources. And I think the intention behind those things was to fill a very sad gap and very painful gap in the market. At the same time though, it's creating this culture where we want instant relief. We want, again, that external fix and that external something to just take away that pain. And we're no longer learning how to tolerate discomfort, tolerate ambiguity. And those things are hallmarks of resilience, which are super critical, especially given what the entire world has been going through the last couple of years. If we don't, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, no, keep going. If we don't learn how to, I mean, therapy is a tool. So my job, the way I see it, and I have several long-term clients because they enjoy that introspection process and they enjoy, you know, constantly learning about themselves and constantly uncovering things. And that is beneficial for them. But these, these programs, it's like, we have to learn how to be our own resource. So it's my job in general to teach people how to fish and how to, again, anchor themselves in things that are beneficial for them, learn enough about themselves to know what's going to work for them. Um, and some people come in with like, you know, in the first session, they have this question of, okay, so are you going to fix this? I'm like, well, I, if I had that kind of power, I don't know that I would be a therapist. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't want to know what the world would look like if we had that kind of power, we could just take things away. I actually worked at um, a university setting for, for several years. And this particular student population was generally, they had generally grown up with resources, therapy since they were four or five, psychiatrists since they were very young. 
Um, some even had coaches starting from when they were teenagers. I mean, they were in a pressure cooker of a society and was all very achievement oriented. So they had all of these resources. They generally came from wealthy families that were able to provide them with those things. And then they come to university and they're expected to tolerate feeling overwhelmed. They're expected to know how to navigate being a young adult, balance schedules, balance that with their social lives, all the while navigating these expectations and this pressure. And what we would see is we had walk-in services. So people could of course come in for their regular appointments, but we had someone on call during the day in case there was something urgent, like someone was just assaulted or someone's having a panic attack or suicidal ideation or any of these things, like, of course, please come in. We would see people come in, sit down and fill out paperwork and insist on seeing someone right away for things that we would anticipate a young adult could tolerate, like someone not texting them back, um, not getting the grade they wanted on an exam. So these are, of course, instances where I would say, hey, Martin, like, I just had a really bad day. I would reach out to a friend. I would, if I got dumped, I would eat Ben and Jerry's and cry with my girlfriends. But we were seeing people come in for mental health services because they did not know how to tolerate painful emotions and they wanted someone to take that away immediately. That was a little disheartening. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. And I can see that in the coaching world as well. Because um, I do, I, I give my clients access to Slack. And it's it's kind of interesting how like, you know, I, I sort of in my mind, I'm like, oh, you know, Slack is like, I'll get back to you within 24 <clears throat> hours, right? But people will be like, mm -hmm. I have an interview in 20 minutes. And I'm like, I'm probably on a call. Like, I can't help yeah. you right this second. Yeah. And it is interesting how like, it does take away that personal agency, right? And it almost feels like um, sometimes I have way more trust in the person than they have in themselves, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. And it, it kind of reminds me of this idea of like, when you're saying people come in over like a text or people come in over these things, it really, it plays into a, another podcast that I did about loneliness in the workplace where we are sort of in a place where, you know, the cliche is everyone's connected socially, but no one's actually connected personally, right? And um, it, 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 in the age of like COVID and pandemic and like, you know, being inside and everything, I've even seen with my friends, like the ability to just sort of schedule something for like, uh, or like to, to say, hey, what are you doing on Friday? Let's go out or something like that. Like everything has become hyper scheduled as well. It's like, mm. what are you doing in three months? Like that's, that's kind <laughs> of where, where friendships are at at this point. Um, and it actually, even in, in, in the world that I'm in, it's like, it takes a lot of effort to sort of even plan phone calls with people and things like that. And I do feel that this sort of is being felt in a lot of different places, both interpersonally in our lives, but also in the workplace as we go more remote. We don't have the ability to just like pop by our boss's desk. We don't have the ability to like have, like, I remember when I first started working remote, um, if I just wanted to be like, hey, how's it going? And like talk to a coworker, I'd have to set up a meeting about something. Like it'd be like weird. And so it does sort of seem to be increasing this isolation while also giving people services that take away their ability to, as you said, build that resiliency and build that ability to be by themselves 
dealing with an emotion, right? And yeah. so we're kind of becoming weaker on both ends in a way. Um, when it comes down to like bouncing back from that, or like, let's say you notice that in your life, someone's listening and they go, wow, yeah, I'm actually having a really hard time just being by myself. What are some things that they can start thinking about or doing or practicing in order to build that resiliency muscle? Yeah. Well, first, I want to emphasize the importance of connectedness and relationships. So if someone is feeling lonely, that's a very painful experience. Anyone experiencing life stressors, mental health concerns, physical health concerns, and even if you're not, you need social support. That's the only reason we've been able to make it this long as, as human beings. Um, and it's the only reason we will continue to make it through difficult times. And <clears throat> there's absolutely nothing wrong. Obviously, I think you and I can both agree, never anything wrong with reaching out for support. And this isn't to minimize you know, that a text, not receiving a text is gonna be difficult for somebody um, because that's, that's where they are and that in their life is, is the crisis. All of that being said, it is important to build that resiliency muscle because sometimes we can start to misinterpret things. So if I reach out to a friend and they happen to be in a very busy season in their life and I misread that and I think, oh, they don't care about me. How's that gonna affect me? So part of resiliency is gonna be about giving yourself grace, giving other people grace and understanding that there is a wide toolbox and toolkit of things that you can do for yourself. Now, before we go, I want to send a ton of love to all the guests that have joined us over the past year. They've brought so many new perspectives on the job search, and they've shared so much about what they've learned about life and everything with all of us. And I cannot thank them enough for their generosity and kindness. And that wraps up our end of year look back. Thanks for tuning in for all of 2021. We'll be taking a bit of a hiatus in January, possibly resharing some past episodes. And I can't wait to share more with you in 2022. So happy new year and cheers to your continued success. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode today. I really appreciate your support of what we're building here at Career Therapy as we continue to try and explore the hidden side of modern work and tell some of the stories that maybe don't get enough light shed on them. If you enjoyed what you listened to today, I hope you will leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, subscribe to this wherever you're listening or watching on YouTube, Spotify, etc. And uh, share this with some friends who you know are going through similar experiences and looking to build their career and, and gain some insights along the way. Again, thank you so much for stopping by and I wish you the best. I'll see you on the next episode.